always good to see you. Love hanging out with you. Um, as you just saw in the little video um, bumper, we're doing a series this summer called Unforgettable. And all it simply means is there's a lot of these standalone talks, but as a collection of thoughts, they are the unforgettable truths that we on the platform feel like God has taught us that have shaped us and changed us. So today, you may have already figured out, I'm going to talk to you about the issue of control. Is that relevant to anybody in this room? All of us want some control. Some of us feel like we need to be in control. We're control freaks. But can I ask you a question? What do you do when you get in a situation and it suddenly dawns on you, you are completely out of control? You have no power uh, in, in the situation you're in. Is it possible for you to pray and trust and relax and just enjoy the ride? Can I give you a picture of what I'm talking about? There's a wildly popular video on YouTube right now. In fact, some of you, I'm sure, have seen it. It's a roller coaster ride, and someone's filming two individuals in the seat of this roller coaster. Now, what makes it hilarious is I think it's an aunt and a nephew, and they're both, they're just absolutely terrorized at first, both of them. But after a moment, the aunt realizes, you know, I'm not in control of this thing. I'm strapped in. I'm just going to enjoy the ride and laugh. The nephew, not so much. This little kid is absolutely demanding they stop the ride every second of the ride. So if you look at the screens, just enjoy. Keep your head back. Feet on the rail. Is that not awesome? Now, now, did you notice the ant on the left is torn between, do I console him or, or do I just laugh at him? You know, what, what do I do here? But, but don't you feel like that sometimes? Do you not feel like either one of those two characters in a given moment? The guy on the left, the little kid saying, stop it, stop it. This is me most of the time. My life is a roller coaster. There's lots of ups and downs going way faster than I'm comfortable with. And I'm absolutely out of control. And I like control. Do you? At least we like it because there's a sense of, I have a variable that's within my charge. You know, I can control this. For some, for some of us, it's just wired into us. But I think for every human being, there's a part of us that feels better when we have a hold on something. That somehow it's us, not someone else, that's in charge. So this morning, what I'd like to talk to you about is how do you deal with the times when you realize you're not? Can you handle it? And not just handle it. Can you survive without saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, every day of your life? I think there's a way to do that. Um, when we're in situations and we cannot let go, we cannot let someone else be in charge, we can't even let God be in charge, we often will meddle and poke and prod within the problem and make it worse than it is. Not long ago, I finished a great biography, and I think it gives, me, it gives us a great analogy today. 
Way back in 1881, our president, our U.S. president, James Garfield, was assassinated. But because he's a little-known president, you probably don't know the, the, the events that surround that horrible tragedy. James Garfield walked into a train station in Washington, D.C. one hot July morning, 1881. And uh, he had no idea what was awaiting him there, but there was a crazy man with a pistol in his pocket. And as Garfield walked across the, the platform, this man walked out, Charles Gateau was his name, and he, take, he took two shots at the president. The first one grazed him on the shoulder, but the second one lodged right behind his pancreas. Well, it was a tragedy, and they took Charles Gateau into custody, and he was later charged with the assassination of the president. But what happened next, over the next 80 days, is what made it most tragic. You see, James Garfield would, did not die right away. For the next 80 days, he was under the self-appointed care of Dr. Willard Bliss. Dr. Bliss, with his team, decided they were going to nurse the president back to health, and it was going to be a story of success. But they kept poking and prodding and poking and prodding and poking and prodding through the president's body with their fingers and utensils, never, ever finding the bullet. Now, you'd think, surely, within 80 days, the body's not that big. You can find the bullet. They never did. Along the way, Alexander Graham Bell, remember that name? came to visit the president and Dr. Bliss with a metal detector he had just created. Said, you know what, maybe I can run this over the president's body and figure out where the bullet was. But Dr. Bliss said, well, if you're going to do that, you're limited to this section because that's where I think the bullet is. Well, he was wrong. Later, Joseph Lister came to visit. Remember that name? Ever heard of Listerine? He had just developed this theory on germs. And he said, listen, he said, Dr. Bliss, you might want to wash your hands before you poke through the president's body. No joke. He was using dirty utensils and unwashed hands probing through the body of the president, which is exactly what killed him in the end. After 80 days, the president died, and when historians and doctors look back on the episode, they say, it wasn't the bullet that killed the president. It was all the poking around with the hands of Dr. Bliss. In fact, a journalist at the time later said, the doctor gave new meaning to ignorance is bliss. <laughs> now, that wasn't the punchline, mind you, but here's why I share that with you. When I read that story, I thought, what a tragedy, but I also thought, what a picture of me. I get in situations, and I think, I got this. I got this. Men, am I right? I got this. I got this. And we meddle in it. Whatever we're going to do, we meddle in it, and sometimes it turns out worse. It's almost as though God were saying, just take your hands off, and it'll be better. Neutral is better than what you're doing, Bob. So... Every one of us get into these places, maybe daily, maybe weekly, maybe monthly, but we get into these places where we'd like to do something and we can't, or we realize we shouldn't. And I'm saying, in your heart of hearts, can you handle that out-of-control situation? Can you admit along the way that you're empty of answers? In fact, really, I think if I were to put a title on this talk today, it would be Running on Empty. We don't like to be on empty. In fact, we work very hard to not be empty of anything. We don't want to be empty of money. We don't want to be empty of relationships, of entertainment. We want to, you know, entertain ourselves. And, 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 and what we try, we work very hard to fill our pockets, whatever category it is, to not be empty. I had a strange habit um, years ago. I don't have it now, mind you. But years ago, I had a strange habit, my wife couldn't stand it, of driving my car on empty. Does anybody else have this habit? Uh, please, somebody, raise your hand. Um, yeah, you know what I mean. You just, you don't want to waste time in that stupid gas station, and so you drive until you're on fumes. 
I mean, you know, you literally, you, you, and, and, you know, I was hid behind what I wanted. Well, I want to be a good steward of the gas and the time. And so one Sunday morning, we're driving to church. I'm the pastor. It's my job. But I'm en route on a freeway, and my wife looks over and very delightfully says, sweetheart, you might want to fill up the tank. It's on E. E means empty. I said, I got this. I know how far this car can go on an empty tank. I'm, I'm positive. We'll make it there. On the way home, we'll do it. She said, honey, just for my sake, please, there's a gas station in the next exit. Would you just stop? Sweetheart, I am no two-bit driver. I know what I'm doing. Well, you know the rest of the story, don't you? You know the rest of the story. We ran out of gas. Or should I say I ran out of gas? My wife wanted nothing to do with this. In fact, if I remember correctly, she got behind the wheel as I pushed that car on the shoulder of the freeway to the next exit, laughing all the way. Now, there are times... When we need to take care of that in our lives. We're running on empty. We need to stop. We need to rest. We need to refuel. But there are other times, I'm going to suggest this morning, this is the other side of the coin, when emptiness is the greatest gift from God you can have. When emptiness is actually the very thing you need to turn you in the right direction. It might be the wake-up call, in fact. But emptiness can be a good thing, not a bad thing. And striving to fill the pockets with something, maybe something artificial, is the worst thing you can do. So, with that said, I want to start with a couple of foundational thoughts. First of all, would you agree with me to some degree that we live in a world that promises lots of answers but is pretty empty of answers? I mean, people are great, we love our families, etc., etc., but we've, I mean, my goodness gracious, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to sound cynical here, but we're in the middle of a campaign leading up to November, and this is not a partisan, it's not a Democrat or Republican statement, but both sides seem so confident. I would be so refreshed if both of them would say, you know what, we don't know what we're doing. We need to pray. We do not know what we're doing. Would that not be refreshing prior to November? Seriously, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Some of you this year, it was empty place in regard to your work. Budget cuts left employees empty and line items empty on the, on the, uh, the flow charts and, and, the, and the bank charts. Some of you are empty now of that retirement account that you've been saving for for years. Some of you are empty relationally right now. My goodness gracious, this last week, what a tragedy in Aurora, Colorado. I mean, you can't even go to a movie without, you know, 12 people lost their life and dozens of others are in the hospital. Some, they may, you, you wonder, can I not even go to the movies without some sort of protection on my body. And so everywhere we turn, we see the earth devoid of real, real answers. And so the premise of my talk, in case you're going to leave early or fall asleep, let me give you the premise of my talk right now, okay? The premise is simply this. If you are not experiencing God's presence and provision in your life, it may be because... You're not empty enough. I'm going to say it again. If you're not experiencing God's presence and provision in your life the way you would want to, it might just be because you're not empty enough. You see, as I scour the pages of this great book, the Bible, what I notice is that God seems to take special interest in empty places and empty things and empty people. I think he loves everybody, but he is drawn magnetically to, to empty places. His eyes linger on emptiness. Trot with me through the pages of Scripture for a minute. Think about creation. Do you remember what creation looked like before creation happened? The Bible says, and it was empty 
The space was null and void and without form. It was complete emptiness. And God looked at it before he created the heavens and the earth and said, perfect, just what I needed, an empty canvas. And he creates the world. Jesus' very first miracle, do you remember what it was? It was turning water into wine at a marriage festival. Some of you, that's your favorite miracle, turning water into wine. But anyway, Jesus has people come to him at this, at this wedding feast, and, and they say, your mom said, come to you. You might have an answer. We have no more wine for the, for the banquet. And Jesus says, find me some empty jars. And when they find these empty jars completely, without anything, he says, perfect, just what I was looking for. Do you remember the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? Remember this one? Even if you don't know the Bible, remember this miracle where Jesus feeds gobs of people with a little basket of fish and loaves of bread? Remember, Jesus asked a question just before he performed that miracle. He turned to his own men, his staff, his disciples, and said, give them something to eat. They said, Lord, we got nothing. And it's as though Jesus said, perfect. Just wanted you to say it out loud. And then he takes this little basket that this little kid had. It was only enough to feed him, maybe. And he feeds thousands and thousands of people and has some left over. But isn't that a picture of of God lingering and magnetically being pulled toward not the full but the empty? Jesus himself said, those that are sick need a physician, not those that are well. I like the sick folk. By the way, isn't that encouraging to you and me? Interesting. God is magnetically pulled toward empty. And then in the finale of Jesus' life on earth, he's hung on a cross. Remember, between two criminals, two thieves. One of them on the one side is cussing up a storm, bitter at the end of his life. The other one, a little bit better. (laughs) He looks over at Jesus and said, Jesus, I deserve this fate. You don't. Would you remember me when you enter your kingdom? And Jesus says, perfect. You don't even have to pray the sinner's prayer correctly. That was great. You're with me. Today you'll enter into paradise with me. Now, isn't that interesting? This thief has nothing to offer, does he? Nothing. In fact, he didn't have a good life. He didn't have an okay life where he, you know, at least paid his taxes or whatever. He's stealing money. But on the cross, he goes, Lord, I just want to tell you, I'm empty. I deserve this. I'm empty. Is there any possible way you can do it all? Jesus says, perfect. I'm wondering when he looks, looks at you and I, who he adores, if he says, you're just not empty enough. You don't need me enough. You're not desperate enough. Do you ever feel this way? I mean, right now, as I stand before you, I've had to train myself to find places where I'm spiritually bankrupt or emotionally bankrupt or physically bankrupt because I've designed a life that I can pretty much do it by myself. Do you do, you do the same thing? you got routines and you pay your bills and, and we pretty much line up this world that even if God wasn't there, we would pretty much be fine. And God says, okay, but I'm going to leave you alone. Somehow, God wants us to get to the place where even in desperation, as middle-class people, we can say, I'm willing to admit I am empty. I don't have control. And I want you, Lord, to take control. So, there's something about nothing that moves the hand of God. May I say that again? There's something about nothing that moves the hand of God. So the question I want you to think about at the very onset before we look at Scripture today is simply this. As you sit here, wonderfully dressed, you look beautiful in an air-conditioned church in Michigan, are there any 
portions of your life that if you were to get honest and just feel very safe to say it, you would say, that part of my life, it's bankrupt. Maybe for some of you, you are empty relationally. You are single and you do not like it. For some of you, you're married and you're still lonely and you do not like it. For some of you, it is finances. You're just, you worked hard up to this point in your life and now there's nothing to show for it. And it's hard for you to say it out loud, but you'd have to say, I got nothing. For some of you, as I mentioned earlier, it's the retirement years. And you're thinking, I'm going to have to work till I'm 80 years old. For some of you, it might be an adult child that's walked away or, or something. But I want you right now, just to make this meaningful this morning, think of a category in your life that you would say, that's a category that this is relevant for. Maybe other things are fine, but that portion of my life, it's empty. Now, with that said, I want to look at the scripture. There's a great story, a little story, tucked away in 2 Kings chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open them up. It's about a third of the way through the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 4 is the story in the first seven verses that um, isn't read very often, but I think it's loaded with meaning. Now, if you don't have your Bible, do not sweat it. We are about to put this on the screen. You can follow with me on the screen. But let's read the story in whole, in total, and then I'm going to go back and just share a handful of lessons that I think are our takeaway in the 21st century, okay? 2 Kings chapter 4, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read it and, and make some comments along the way, which should not surprise you, okay? All right. Okay, here we go. The wife of a man from a company of the prophets, that means her husband was a part of the school of the prophets. It was a kind of a seminary during that day. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, who, who by the way, was the dean of this school. Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Now, basically what she's saying is, I got no money, I'm completely bankrupt, and the government's coming and saying, well, since you don't have money, I'm going to take your two sons. You think you got it bad, I think all of a sudden we have perspective here. She's about to lose, she's already lost her husband, she's about to lose her kids now. Keep reading. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Now, isn't that the same question that Jesus is asking? What do you have? Give him something to eat. What do you have? He's always asking what we have. And he's wanting us to say certain things. How honest are we going to be? This woman is bluntly honest. Look what she says. Your servant, she says, has nothing there at all. By the way, that was the perfect answer. Elisha says, perfect Now, keep reading. She says, your servant has nothing here at all, she said, except a little oil. She's got a few drops of oil left. Now, watch what he tells her next. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Now, stop. I'm sorry. If you're going to think logically with me, that seems odd. Wouldn't you think he would say, wow, you just got a couple drops of oil? Go take up an offering from your neighbors, right? Go find everything you can. He says, no, go and find, go and find more, more empty jars. You got a lot of empty, you don't have enough empty. Go find more emptiness. Isn't that what he's saying? So she's, I mean, I'm sure this is weird. Knock in there. You got any empty jars? I, don't. Don't you want jars? No, just empty. Oil? No, just an empty jar. She rounds up all the empty jars she can borrow from her neighbors. This is a sound, this is a weird experiment. Keep reading. So Elisha said, go around, ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. I love this. In other words, get ready. Don't just get a few of them. Get a bunch. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. 
and pour oil into all the jars. And as each one is filled, put it to one side. Now, clearly, Elisha's imagining something she's not yet imagining. Remember, she's got a few drops of oil. He goes, keep pouring till they're all full. She's going, I don't understand how two, oil, two drops can do this. But is it this God? Does this sound strangely familiar? The fish and the loaves and all the other times he takes nothing and makes something? By the way, in the creation, the word was ex nihilo in Hebrew, which means he made something out of nothing. When we build something here, we take already existing wood and nails and shingles and so forth, and we make a house. But it's something, and then we make something else. He makes something out of nothing. And that's about what he's about to do here. Keep reading. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. She brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There's not a jar left. And it was then the oil stopped flowing. She went in and told the man of God, that is Elisha, and he said, Go sell the oil, pay all your debts, and your sons can live on what is left. Now, let me just set up my comments by saying this. First of all, you saw from the story here, did you not, that this woman is absolutely empty. She has no husband, no income, no food, no money, no prospects, nothing. She's empty. And she is in a perfect place now to receive something huge from God. It's almost like you could say, the greater the emptiness, the greater the miracle. By the way, isn't that good news? The greater the emptiness, the greater the miracle. Thief on the cross, bingo. Okay. Second thing I want you to catch is this. What she learned from the prophet Elisha here was that God would only fill what was empty. He only meets needs. Did you notice when the empty jar stopped, the oil stopped? Interesting. Didn't keep coming. It stopped. And so, once again, we're drawn to this this scenario that God prefers to lead his people to an empty place before he does something great. In fact, I know I've kind of said that in a different way, but can I just have you register this in your thinking? Wherever you are in your journey right now, God prefers to take his people, even wealthy, well-to-do, well-off, smart, sharp, full people, to an empty place in whatever category you, you need before he does something great. Remember Abraham? The fa- no, you don't remember. Remember reading about Abraham? If you remember him, I'd like your autograph. That'd be amazing. Do you remember reading about Abraham? Centuries ago, the father of the Hebrew race, God said, Abe, you're rich. And by the way, he was. He had land and cattle, livestock, lots of children, servants, wives. And God says, go out to that empty place. Now, that seems weird. You think God would say, great, got a, got a pretty well-to-do guy. He's kind of set. Retirement plan's ready. I can really use this guy. I don't have to do, I have to fix a lot of things. God says, no, you're so full, I don't think I can use you. Hello. And he says, go out to that place I will show you. Don't even tell him where it is. Go out to that desert place I'm going to show you. And he sends him off. Do you remember Moses? Moses was the prince of Egypt. He was the adopted son of the Pharaoh. He's growing up in the palace. He has everything he needs, the Ferrari. He has it all. It's all there. And then God says, well, I really would like to use you to set my people free, the, the slaves. So I'm going to send you out to a desert. Wait, wait, God. I, no, I, 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 I got a great, I mean, I got, I got no, you got to go out to a wilderness for 40 years. And he sends him out to an empty space before he can use him. Interesting. Do you remember Jacob? 
Jacob is this man that is the second born of a set of twins, but because he was the second one out, he didn't get the birthright or the blessing or all the perks of being the firstborn. And so his entire life, does this sound familiar, men, was scraping and clawing and scratching to try to get ahead. And finally God says, I'm sick and tired of this, Jacob. I love you, but he, he takes him up to an empty, lonely mountain in the middle of the night, and they wrestle. The angel of the Lord and Jacob have a fighting match. And it was, interestingly, when he was alone and it was empty. And that's when God begins to be able to use Jacob. And then remember his son, Joseph. Remember Joseph, the coat of many colors? And you know that story. Well, it's interesting. He's the favored son of 11 sons. And yet, before God can use him, he's beat up by his brothers, thrown into a pit, then sold into slavery, ends up in prison. Now, he was doing fine before. Wouldn't you think God would like to use the fine time? No, i got to take you to an empty place, and then I can really use you. It's almost as though we find ways to prop ourselves up so well, God says, i got to take you to a place where you can't prop yourself up anymore. Did you hear what I just said? I'm really preaching to me. I need this. I'm this male with an ego, and I want to do things. And I want to provide. And God says, I'm glad I built you that way. But somewhere along the way, you've forgotten to learn how to lean on me. You're not willing to say you're empty. So I think there's five lessons that we can learn from this little story. And so if you're taking notes or making mental notes, I'm going to give you five statements that are very, very simple, but I think terribly profound for me at least in the 21st century. Maybe there'll be a takeaway for you today. Okay? Fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Lesson number one. Emptiness is actually a gift from the Lord. Contrary to what you might have believed up to this point, that blessing might not look like fullness at first. It might look like emptiness. And wouldn't it, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't it be true when you tell your story very candidly to friends that you feel safe enough to tell your story to? Isn't true the greatest steps forward in your own maturation, your own spiritual journey? Weren't there times when it, were hard, it was hard? Come on, am I right about this? Wasn't the easy times? Oh, my God, it was easy. I, God really blessed me then, and I grew. It was probably the hard times. And I'm simply saying, I think this woman would say, if she were here today, it was the empty place that was the gift from the Lord. In fact, let me say it this way. I think that from the beginning of creation of mankind, man has been in this desperate hunt to fill himself, to satisfy himself. Most of the behaviors that you do from day to day are attempts to fill yourself. You go and make money. You go and do this. You do that. You entertain yourself. You divert yourself. All the stuff we do, boats and jet skis and everything else on the side, all the, we want to fill ourselves. Often, not with bad things, but artificial things, things that aren't really the thing that God wants to put in that empty space. In fact, can I really push you on this? If we were honest, even our acts of service to others, where we serve and minister to others, let's just get honest. While that is the right thing to do, don't we sometimes do it at least partially because we feel better about ourselves? Hmm? So I'm just saying, we've been in this desperate hunt since the beginning of time, humankind is. And God's just saying, could you just recognize that when you're empty, it's actually a gift from me. I'm actually giving you a little bit of a, a signal there. Solomon is a great example. You know, Solomon is known as the king that was the wisest and richest king ever to have lived. But you remember he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Have you read the book of Ecclesiastes? It's right in the middle of the Bible. Read it sometime. It is the most cynical book you'll ever read. In this book, though, this rich, rich, rich king who was very wise 
tried everything to fill the empty spots in his life. I mean, women. He tried women. Can I tell you how he tried women? A thousand wives and concubine. That's too many ladies. <laughs> women, am I right? And by the way, women, would you not? thousand men. Too many men. Too many. Too much testosterone there. So, so a thousand women. He tries gardens and projects. And he tries this and that. He tries everything. But eight times in that little book, you read his words, and this too was emptiness and meaningless. It's like that proverbial Hollywood star that once in a while gets honest on an interview and says, I'm not even happy with all this stuff. So emptiness is a gift from the Lord. Lesson two. The second lesson I'd have you catch is this. Emptiness actually prompts a wake-up call. Emptiness can actually prompt, and it's supposed to prompt a wake-up call. It's not no supposed to drive you forward to artificially fill the space. It's to drive you to your knees to say, God, I'm empty. And God's saying, good. You just realize the issue is not you're empty. The issue is you acknowledged the emptiness. I already knew you were empty. Thanks for saying it. So in this particular state, the, the woman actually says, I realize this is a wake-up call. Can I, tell you, can I give you an analogy? Maybe this will help you wrap your arms around it. Would you agree with me that most of us in our world today do everything we can to fight pain? We don't like pain, do we? We have aspirin and Tylenol and Advil. If any, we have a little ache and pain. Ooh, take a pill. We medicate pain, do we not? The answer is yes, in case you're afraid to answer. Would you not agree pain's a good thing? If you're walking along a, a road and you're barefooted and you step on a nail, isn't pain a gift right there? You quickly take your foot off the, and you yell, but you take your foot off the nail because God put that nerve there to signal pain so you don't get a, so you don't need a tetanus shot in a day or two. All I'm simply saying is emptiness is supposed to be the same signal. It's supposed to be just enough pain that it makes you go, it's not, it's not, it's not supposed to make you medicate. It's supposed to make you say, aha, this is a signal. This is a signal. It means I have a need. I wasn't aware I had a need. In fact, I'm doing everything to medicate the fact that I'm aware I have a need. I now realize I've got a need. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're empty, it means you're empty of something. And God's saying, I want you to see what you're empty of. And it's me. I actually solve that and that and that and that and that along the way. Emptiness actually prompts a wake-up call. Can I tell you a time it happened for me? I've shared with you often that I have the undeserved privilege of traveling to many, many different countries around the world every year, and so I think I've been to over 40 different countries, but I've been to Romania five times. My first couple of visits to the country of Romania were before the revolution happened in 1989. I went in 87 and 88. While I was over there, I happened to venture into a church that was worshiping God overtly, even among a communist dictator, Ceausescu. There were secret servicemen in the audience dressed in black, taking names down of people that were getting baptized or making decisions to follow Christ. They were, they were put on a blacklist. But nonetheless, these people were loudly and with, passionate, uh, w- with passion worshiping God. I mean, just reckless abandon. And so I'm moved to tears. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about church in America where we kind of patty cake for God. And they're just, it's just out there. So after the service, one of the women that's in this service sees me, teary, a little bit emotional, and she said, are you okay? And I said, it's just that I have experienced God here, and I don't even know the language because I'm among these people that just follow after him with such passion. 
And I said, I got to be honest with you, in America, this is really rare what I just experienced. And she said to me, and she was very kind, but she said to me something interesting. She said, well, I believe in America. I've never been there, but she said, I believe in America. You have so many distractions. She said, here in Romania, we have no distractions and we have nothing else to lean on but him. And so we worship. Makes sense, doesn't it? Do you remember the last time you got to the end of your rope? Wasn't there a real clear, clear vision of the Lord? Am I right about this? It's like, holy smokes, I need some holy smoke. I mean, you're here saying, I need God. And you know what God's saying? Good. You actually had that reality in the middle of the rope, but you wouldn't call on me in the middle of the rope. You had to get to the end of your rope. So thanks for getting to the end and finally seeing it's a wake-up call. Interesting. We're, we're the boneheads that need help. And yet he's saying, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. Okay, lesson number three. Third lesson is, I may not be empty enough. Now, I've already touched on this, but I want you to please get this, because as people that are fairly well-to-do in middle-class America, we don't believe this. You did notice, didn't you, in the midst of this story, she's getting a bunch of jars, and as long as she had empty jars, she had provision. But the moment the empty jars ran out, so did the oil. And it's almost as though God's saying to us, I just want you to know, I know exactly what I'm doing. And when you run out of emptiness, I stop providing. So to the degree you have emptiness is the degree you get my answers. You just need a little help from me? I'll give you a little help. You get a lot of help? You need a lot of help? I'm going to give you a lot of help. It's almost a direct proportion what you receive from God and how empty you're willing to admit you are. And sometimes our problem, our greatest problem is, We're not empty enough. So, if you're still trying to orchestrate things yourself, manipulate things, kind of navigate the way yourself, I got it, I got it. Maybe God's saying, okay, go ahead and take it. But let me know. Just let me know. When you're willing to take your hands off, you realize it's a roller coaster, you're strapped in, you got no control. And I'll take it from there. And we'll make it fun. Lesson number five. The fifth, I'm sorry, four. Sorry, I wasn't a math major. Lesson number four um, is, I'm just looking at the clock. I'm trying to be careful with your time. Lesson number four. I love this one. I must admit my emptiness. Now, I realize that sounds like a platitude, but, but adults, listen to me. We're adults, <laughs> We've, we've been through years of life. We've been through a few battles. We've been shot at a few times. We've grown up, got a little skeptical, in fact. We've got a three-digit IQ. We know how to make money. We're good people. I would say the lesson I must relearn over and over and over, now that I'm over 50 years into my life, is I've got to admit my emptiness, which I do not like to do. And in this case, one of the most brilliant turning points in the story is when the woman would say to Elisha, I don't got anything. I got nothing. Now, she actually had the oil. In fact, she later added that little caveat. I got, a, I got a little bit of oil. But the first thing she said is, I just want you to know, I don't pretend to have anything that can re- even remotely meet the needs that I have. And I have noticed that many times our biggest battle is self-awareness. We're not aware. But get this. The issue is not that we're empty. We are empty. The issue is, will we acknowledge the emptiness? You see, I have found that most of the time I'm okay with a little emptiness. Can I say that again? Most of the time, I'm okay with a little emptiness. We get in a little prayer group, a little small group, a little study group. I'm, I'm a little, I need a little prayer. Just a little, not a big prayer, just a little prayer. 
Just pray for me. Just a little. Just silent prayer. So, little. I mean, is that on us? We don't, we don't want to overspeak. We don't want to people gossiping about us. Like, oh, God, what's going on over there? Just, just a little prayer. And I think sometimes the best thing we can do without overspeaking is to say, folks, I am an idiot. I, I need God like I've never needed him before. God says, perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. So the issue is not emptiness. You are empty. I am empty too in certain categories of our life. The issue is, will we say it? Will we acknowledge it? Will we admit it out loud? I love the book of Revelation. Um, you know, in the early portion of the book of Revelation, Jesus is actually writing letters to different churches in Asia Minor back in the early days of the church. And do you remember in the third chapter, starting with verse 17? In fact, just follow with me. We'll put it on the screen. This is absolutely powerful. He says, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize, Christ says, that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I don't think he meant that literally. I just think he meant, you guys don't even see how bankrupt you are. This is why Jesus, at one point in his ministry, said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you finally admit you are impoverished. That's when I bless you. Um, let's go to the second. Can we go to the second verse there, that Revelation 3.20? Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Did you know he's writing that to church people? He's not talking to outside pagans that don't know anything. He's saying, listen, brothers and sisters, knock on my door. Or I'm knocking at your door. But I'm not coming in until you say, empty, uncle, needy. Okay, enough said. One last scripture I just want you to write down. I'm going to do number five. We won't, I'm, not, I'm going to paraphrase this, but I want you to jot it down. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. It's powerful. In fact, I'm going to paraphrase it to you, okay? So listen closely. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul the apostle basically said, Therefore, because of this truth of our emptiness... I relish in my weaknesses, for I have found when I am weak, then he is strong. Does this sound strangely familiar? I am now, and Paul, this is Paul the Apostle, the greatest apostle that ever lived, is saying, I'm just relishing now in where I'm absolute wingnut, foul tip, bonehead. Those are the moments when I see God show up. If I don't admit it, I don't see him show up. Okay, enough said. Lesson number five. The final lesson I want to give you is also one that I, I'm, I'm telling you, it's going to sound like just a cliche. It's going to sound like a platitude. But would you register it as though it were this morning's newspaper? Only God can fill my empty places. Several theologians down through history have said there is an empty space in all of our hearts that can only be filled by him. And we try to cram boats and cars and places and people and vacations in it, but really it can only, only be filled by God. In fact, some of you here today, maybe this is the most important thing I'll say. You've tried everything and now you're in church and I'm just saying, it's not even church. It's the answer. Church is an environment where you can find it, but it's a relationship with Jesus. Would many of you agree with me right now? It's a relationship with your maker. That's the only thing that can really fill that, that spot. But we insist with our egos and pride and, and self-sufficiency 
to continue to prop ourselves up. And ladies, can I just have you listen down to me talking to the men? Men, this is hard for us because we do have a bit of a male ego. We do have testosterone running through our veins, which makes us want to go out and hunt and kill and provide. I'm glad that's in there, but it keeps us. Here's the, weak, the downside of that. It keeps us from seeing God and needing him or thinking we need him. In fact, what comes to mind, I don't know if any of you ever watched Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld, the stand-up comedian. You know, he had the show on for long, but he does a lot of stand-up comedy. One of my favorite bits in his comedy is he says, have you ever seen how guys act? He says, they're driving in a pickup truck down the freeway. They have a mattress on top of the truck. And they got their arm up there. I got this. As if their arm's going to hold the mattress on that, you know, on that pickup truck. I got this. That is us. We're not going to hold the mattress up, but we think we will. You know what it's like? Here, here's the best way I can describe it. If you're not quite sure what to think of Jesus and how much you need Jesus, can I just give you a scenario that will clearly give you the picture? It would be like if all of us want to get to Hawaii. Let's say Hawaii is our goal. In fact, for some of you this summer, Hawaii was the goal, okay? We line up on the coast of California in our swimming trunks. Someone fires a gun into the air, and we take off. We're going to swim to Hawaii. Would you not agree? You might be miles ahead of me, but we're all going to need the Coast Guard. Amen? True? We're all going to need the Coast Guard. I don't care if you're really good. You may be, I mean, Michael Phelps. You're still going to need the Coast Guard. This is us. And listen, for some of you today, you need to take a step with the Lord. You have tried everything else. And I'm saying you're a good swimmer, but you ain't that good. You're never going to make it. And heaven is a place. It's so perfect. None of us are perfect enough to, to earn it. So we find, the way you come to Christ is you say, I'm empty in this category. And he goes, thank you. Perfect. But some of you, it's other categories. It's money, it's people, it's wife, it's husband, whatever it is. But you've got to get to the place where you say, only God can do this. And the greatest steps I've taken in my own journey have been times where I've said, Tim O'More, nice guy, but I'm empty here. And now I've learned to relish it. In fact, if you're here today, you already know Jesus, you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and you're going, this is a nice talk, kind of inspirational, but not really relevant to me. Can I give you a homework assignment? Put yourself in a place this week, I repeat, put yourself in a place this week where you're in a situation that you could not possibly pull it off without God. That'll get you praying. That'll get you saying, I'm empty. And he can say, perfect. Let me close with this. There's a poem I dug up years ago, and I rarely read it because poetry is not that big right now, but can I just read this to you as I close today? I think this poet puts into words everything I'm trying to say beautifully. Just relax and listen. I gave them to him all the things I'd valued so until I stood there empty-handed. Every glittering toy did go. And I walked earth's lonely highways in my rags and poverty till I heard his voice entreating, lift your empty hands to me. Empty hands I lifted to him and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till my hands could hold no more. And at last I comprehended with my mind so slow and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. That's all we're saying. Where are you empty? Let's pray. Father, today, I want to pray, first of all, for everybody in this room, 
that you would just show us where we're empty and we perhaps don't even know it. Or those places we've medicated and tried to pretend we're not empty, not think about it. Bring them to our attention this week. And then, Father, give it us to the place where we're emotionally secure enough to say, I'm bankrupt there. Help us to invite other people in, to pray with us, to, 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 to give us counsel. But God, help us to see and acknowledge where we're empty. Thank you. Now, with your head still bowed, one more prayer. Some people every single week here would have ventured into this room at Northridge, and maybe this made sense today. But if you were honest, you'd say, I don't think I've ever admitted I'm empty in terms of my relationship with God. I've never taken that first step with Jesus Christ and invited him to come into my life and take over my life and be my savior. You've been in church, but you've never stepped over the line of faith and said yes to Jesus. If that's you, I would love to pray with you right now. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or stand up or anything, but right where you're seated, if you would like to pray that prayer and invite him to come in, I want to pray with you. And what I'm going to do is pray a very simple prayer, phrase by phrase. I'm going to pause after each phrase. I want you, if it expresses the desire of your heart, if you can be sincere, I want you just to say it, even in your own words, thought for thought. And what you're doing simply is is not saying you're going to be perfect. You're not. In fact, what you're saying is you're empty, and you want him to come in and begin that relationship with you. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I do admit I'm empty. I want to know you. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you that as you died, you give me forgiveness for my sins. Right now, I invite you to come into my life and be my Savior and my Lord. Fill my empty places, God. Now, Lord, build me into the person you want me to be. And thanks for the gift of everlasting life with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, this is so significant. I I, I know it's time to go, but can I just say something? Thank you. Brilliant decision. It may have seemed simple, that little prayer, but that was the most important decision you ever make in your life. It's an eternal decision. And what we'd like to do is we want to just follow up with you and send you some stuff and help you get started in your relationship with God. So in your program, there's a little flap. You'll notice it has orange ribbons on the top and the bottom. It's actually the one that's perforated that you can tear off. What I'd like you to do, if you will, is just fill out that little contact info, and then at the bottom orange ribbon, just check that box. The one that says, today I prayed to receive Christ into my life for the first time. If you'll fill it out, check that box. And then on your way out, there's boxes right next to all the doors. You can just drop it in the box. We'd love to send you some stuff, invite you to something called Starting Point that help you get started in just knowing the Bible and knowing God uh, and just help you get started on the right foot. You guys, I love hanging out with you. Thank you for being here. Have a great week. See you next Sunday. One thing that I love you. I say, hey, I'll be gone.